The fundamental question that these parables ask is this. Is it possible for someone who has fallen away from the faith, a baptized child, to be brought to repentance? And the answer is yes, a thousand times yes. It has to be yes. Or I'm damned. And so are you. Pastor Peter Bender speaking at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. But if we as earthly parents love our children in spite of the fact that they rebel and maybe wander from home, how much more does the Father's love for us in Christ Jesus never cease? That is the birthright that you and I have been given in our baptism. That is our consolation. You can watch and listen to Pastor Peter Bender's teaching, Making the Case for a Dying Man's Consolation, and all of the presentations from this year's conference for a contribution of $300. It's available via on-demand video stream or podcast. Learn more at issuesetc.org. You got all these great answers to all these great questions. You've got all these great answers to all these great questions. Kathy wants to know what it means when the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus descended into hell. Suzanne in Boise, Idaho, wants to know what it means when in 2 Samuel 12, God says that he would have given David more wives in addition to the many he already had. Is this an example of God saying that polygamy can be allowed? Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's time to answer your unanswered Bible questions. Joining us to do so, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. He is a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Staff Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? Brian, welcome to you. Thank you, Todd. First one's for you, Pastor Wolfmiller. Jeremy says... I don't know if this is too vague, but what insights do you have on the inclusion or exclusion of John 8, verses 1 through 11 from the earliest manuscripts? Tell us about what the kind of the textual situation is there, and what are your thoughts? Sure. There's a few places in the New Testament where in our modern versions, like the ESV or some of the others, will have brackets around the text, and they'll have a little footnote that says some of the earliest texts exclude this passage. And and that's the case here in John 8. It's a beautiful story of the woman caught in adultery brought to Jesus, and he writes in the ground, and all the he says, whoever has no sin, let him throw the first stone, and then they all leave. And then Jesus is left with the woman and says, have they all left? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's absolutely beautiful picture of the Lord's mercy and grace. Some of the early manuscripts don't have the text. There's, I think, one manuscript, early manuscript, that has it actually in the Gospel of Luke. And so there's a question mark about whether John included this in his original edition of John. Did John include it later? Was it a story from John or from the life of Jesus that was floating around looking for a place to land in the scriptures? And it's a historical question we just can't answer. Maybe points to the fact that that what we have in the scriptures— is wonderfully preserved for us. And these few places where we have question marks in the margin uh, remind us how there's no question marks in all the other places. So that's a good reminder that the Lord has preserved a really beautiful text for us that we can rely on and that none of these textual distinctions make any sort of theological differences. So it's always a good thing to point out that. But it's also good to know that 
these are historical questions that the gospels were being passed around and being copied and being shared and that there were words being spelled here different than there, words being left out here than there. There's so many of these manuscripts now that we can pile them up together and get a very good construction of how the original texts looked. And again, it just reminds us of that, how the Lord has miraculously preserved for us the scriptures that we can rely on for all that we need for doctrine and life. Todd, if I could add to that, I think that, as Pastor Wolfmiller said, this is a question of history, and I think what really does help us to understand this is church history. I mean, looking back at the early church, from the apostolic age on up to the Reformation, up to our own time period. And when you look at the, the manuscripts itself, there is a Latin codex about 400 AD that does have it in that place where we have it, John chapter 8. But if you look back at the historical church fathers, Eusebius of Caesarea in particular, the church historian, I mean, he's early fourth century. So even before that, he writes about Papias, who's one of the early church fathers, who Papias had referred to another story of John about a woman who was brought to Jesus and was accused of many sins. And so Papias is in the early second century. And Papias himself states that he knew elders who knew the apostles. And then later on in the late Later, second century, Irenaeus testifies that Papias also knew the Apostle John. And so with the church history and understanding of this being handed down through the ages, I think the church accepted this as part of John's writing, as part of the written scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it's been received that way ever since that time period. This question for you, Pastor Ketchelmeyer, from Suzanne in Boise, Idaho. Can you explain 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 9? It seems that God is saying that he would have given David more wives in addition to the ones he already had. Is this an example of God saying polygamy can be allowed? Thanks so much. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's interesting for us in our context historically, here we are in America, and now, of course, you've got all these questions about marriage. Uh, and so this is a question that we need to address, that we need to talk about. And whenever we talk about marriage, we always have to go back to the institution of marriage in God's word, which is Genesis chapter two, between one man and one woman. Now, it is true that later on, by the time you get to Genesis chapter four, Lamech takes two wives. I mean, so now all of a sudden you have after the fall into sin, you see that things start to fall apart, even in the institutions of God. Wherever God has put order, the devil always comes and brings disorder. But originally, God created it man and woman, united to become one flesh. But immediately with Lamech in Genesis chapter 4, you see this. Of course, as Genesis continues, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob having multiple wives. When you get to David, then, of course, this issue is that David now has multiple wives. And it's the question in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is that the prophet Nathan is confronting David, of course, with the issue of adultery. I mean, so we are talking about Sixth Commandment type stuff here, that uh, we have adultery with Bathsheba. And this is a situation where David is in that state. And so this is where Nathan is saying, you are the man. You're the one. You're the one who ought to die. You're a son of death because of what you've done, bringing murder upon Uriah, her husband, and of course, bringing this uh, sexual immorality with Bathsheba herself. But it's in that case where the Lord is telling David, hey, I've given you everything. 
I mean, this is the idea. I've given you everything. Look at this. I've given you your master's house. That's Saul's house. I've given you your master's wives. That was part of the punishment on Saul as king, that now David is king, and now David receives what God gives in this whole kingdom itself. So that's, I gave you your master's wives. Your arms are full. I gave you the house. I mean, did you need more? I could have added more. I mean, it's kind of this rhetorical kind of device where it's, look, you had everything, but it wasn't sufficient for you. You didn't satisfy you. You always wanted more. And that's always the issue with sin. But when you go back to Deuteronomy, Moses had warned about this. Deuteronomy chapter 17, when Moses is saying at one point, you will have a king. You will have a king like the nations because you're going to want a king like the nations, even though God is your king. Yahweh is your king. He's the king of kings, but you'll reject him and you'll want the kings like the nations and you'll want to act like the nations and you'll want to follow the deities of the nations. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it was a warning that you get a king and he is going to acquire many wives for himself. And when that happens, there's going to be that temptation for his heart to turn away from God. And so this is going to be the issue. You want a king, you'll have a king. He's going to have many wives. His heart will be turned away to all the different deities. So as many wives as you have, as many gods, he will end up being tempted to have. And we see this obviously with Solomon, David's son in 1 Kings chapter 11. So I think that when you look at the Old Testament, you look at these accounts where you have multiple wives, it's not that it's a prescription of what we are to do. It's a description of what has happened in a deformed creation that has fallen apart, that the order that God has put into place has gone into disorder. In the New Testament, when we talk about marriage, marriage goes back to the original intent of one man and one woman, because this shows forth the imagery of Christ and his church. Christ is the bridegroom who gives up his life for the church, his wife, to cleanse her, to make her holy, to remove all the spots and blemishes, all the sin. So when we see marriage, we see the picture of Christ and his church. We see the picture of Jesus who gives up his life so that we could live eternally with him. A question for Pastor Wolf Miller from Carter in Canada. Good day, pastors. I was wondering what your thoughts are on whether water baptism is necessary for salvation. For example, can a person be saved through their own reading of the gospel, say at home or while traveling? Must they go to church and be immersed in water for their soul to be saved in Christ? Thanks. Wonderful question. I would start by uh, modifying a little bit of the language. The first is this distinction when Carter says water baptism. I would just say baptism because there's a danger in evangelicalism that we start to separate water baptism from spirit baptism as if the spirit is not present with the water or the water indicates the absence of the spirit. Baptism is what the Lord gives us. And it also mentioned immersion. This is a common thing also with evangelicalisms coming out of the Baptist tradition that baptism means immersion. There's a sense that it can mean immersion. It mostly means ritual washing. So it's a washing that's not to wash the hands or cleanse the body. It's a different kind of washing that's happening in baptism. And so to clean that language up, I would say that the scripture gives us the answer that yes, baptism is necessary for salvation. And we draw that from the words of Jesus in John 3, verse 5, especially when he's talking to Nicodemus and he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to explain this to Nicodemus. It's in the context of baptism, especially John chapter 1 and 2, and then later in John chapter 3. So we know that this water there is the water of holy baptism. And Jesus there puts in to our mouths and our hearts this necessity of baptism that he intends the church to be baptizing for salvation. And we see that confirmed, especially in the book of Acts, whenever the gospel is preached, the people who 
believe it, are baptized. Even thinking of the Ethiopian eunuch who is riding along in the chariot while Philip is explaining the death of the Messiah from Isaiah 53, and he sees what he says, there's water, what's to prevent me from being baptized? Anyone who becomes a Christian is immediately baptized in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. So we see that baptism and salvation are bound up to one another. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. In baptism, you put on Christ. We were buried with Christ through baptism into death so that we can walk with him in newness of life. And baptism saves you. All these great connections to baptism and salvation. And so the Lord saves with and in his gift of baptism. Now, that's not to say that the Holy Spirit cannot work saving faith in a person's heart through the study of the gospel, through the hearing of the preaching. We wouldn't exclude those from one another, but in fact, put them together. And one of the things that I'm, and maybe Todd, Pastor Ketchermeyer, you guys can help me with this because I've been trying to think of how best to explain this point, is that in the evangelical mind, Grace alone is a reductionistic proposition. In other words, we know that the gospel excludes works. And so we're trying to trim off every unnecessary thing from the gospel. The problem is that trimming off of works starts to trim away all the different ways that the Lord works. So that when we come along and say that baptism is necessary for salvation or that hearing the gospel is necessary for salvation or whatever is necessary for salvation, it strikes the evangelical ear as if we're adding something to God's grace. We say, no, baptism is the grace of God being brought to the sinner for our salvation, for our life, for our redemption, that we would be born again and justified and adopted into the Lord's family. All these gifts come through baptism, and we do not have the option of being baptized. No, it's the way that the Lord brings that salvation to us. Now, maybe one more small caveat, and that is, is it possible to be saved apart from baptism? And the answer is, that's the Lord's business, and presumably, yes. St. Augustine famously said, it's not the absence of baptism that damns, but the despising of it. So that if the Lord calls someone to faith through the preaching of the gospel and they have a heart attack or get hit by a bus or whatever before they come to the gift of baptism, then God be praised, we have no doubt that the Lord has rescued them and redeemed them and justified them through the preaching of the word and by his own arrangement took them to heaven before they were able to be baptized. But that doesn't give us the freedom to lay aside baptism or put it off or despise it or to say it's not important or not necessary. A related question from Joshua, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. He says, my best friend is Reformed Calvinist. He and I disagree on the Holy Spirit working through the word during baptism. He says, baptism is a man's work, as it is the pastor who speaks and performs the actions. I say the pastor is the chosen instrument that God uses to speak his word through, and that the Holy Spirit, as he always does, works in, with, and through the word. I say a Calvinist baptism is more of a work, a ceremony, a ritual, empty of God's real presence. And that is what makes a Calvinist baptism a work. I'm trying to get him to see how Lutheran baptism is gospel and how a Calvinist baptism is law. Can you provide some scriptural exegesis on this? Yeah, again, this is directly related to what we were just talking about. And I think some of this is we need to take a little bit of a run backwards into history and understand the historical context. I mean, when when you have Luther proclaiming that we are justified through faith alone, immediately you had uh, those like with the followers of Zwingli or the Anabaptists who were followers of Zwingli, who then said that, well, if faith alone, then that means you don't have baptism. So you have no means that the Holy Spirit doesn't need a cart. And so that's kind of that idea of Zwingli. 
Zwingli, uh, later on with the Anabaptist, and especially Schwenkfeld. Uh, that was the whole rejection of anything that was earthly, being baptism, water was earthly, bread and wine, earthly, body and blood of Jesus, earthly. The idea of, even for Schwenkfeld, the written scripture was earthly. So there is that strange disconnect in, in our modern day with the Baptist world, the American evangelicals trying to make a distinction between the written word as a means of grace, but not baptism. But baptism is the word. It's the word with water. The Lord's Supper is the word. It is the word with the body and blood of Jesus given to you to eat and to drink. When we look at this, you, you understand that historical Anabaptist rejection of any kinds of an instrument or a means. Now, in that historical setting, then you had that kind of that third party that kind of arises up that is uh, Calvinism. And in Calvinism, they had a, a little bit of a different take because they're trying to say, okay, we don't fully agree with the Lutherans because we want to go further than what the Lutherans did. We want to get rid of anything that looks like or sounds like or smells like Roman Catholicism. We have to get rid of it. But yet, the Calvinists still held to an infant baptism. And so they know that baptism does something, but they're trying to figure out, well, exactly what does it do? So they take that Augustinian understanding and kind of take it out of context that it's an outward sign of an inward grace. But what they're trying to emphasize as Calvinists is that baptism is just kind of marking you here in time, but it's really insignificant because for the Calvinist, what is most significant or the only thing that's truly significant is that predestination, that double predestination where they end up in. And that idea that before the foundation of the earth, before you did anything, God already predetermined who was going to be saved and who was going to be condemned. So when you get into that understanding of Calvinism, baptism in that perspective is pretty much insignificant. And that's why you're going to see a big difference between the Lutherans and the Calvinists on the idea of an emergency baptism. So when Lutherans, and we say that baptism is necessary for salvation, it's a necessary instrument through which God himself is instituted. He's given to us as a gift to assure us that we have the promise of the forgiveness of sins, that in baptism, God gives us the promise that we are united into the death and resurrection of Christ. So for Lutherans, this is what's key. If you, you want to know if you are one of the elect, one of those who are chosen, will you look to your identity in baptism because God gave you individually that promise that this is Christ for you. You have been united with Christ. You have died to sin, and now you live to God. And so that's why in the Lutheran faith, we understood, just like the historic Catholic faith, that there is a need for baptism on a deathbed for somebody who had not been baptized. So that's why we have an emergency baptism. And we would even say that the normal course of things, a pastor baptizes because he's called to this public ministry of word and sacrament. But in these unusual emergency situations, any baptized believer, even a woman outside of the pastoral office, it's only for men, could baptized in an emergency. And so this was the discussion of the Catholic Church historically, and the Lutherans continued that. But when you get to the Anabaptists, Wingley, Schwenkfeld, and even Calvin, there's this kind of this almost desire to sever ties uh, with the, the ancient church, with the practices of the ancient church. That's why the Ab Anabaptists don't receive the Nicene Creed when we say one baptism for the remission of sins. But in Calvinism, there's no need for an emergency baptism. Because it's like, well, if a child or a baby, an infant died before being baptized, well, it really didn't matter in a Calvinistic point of view, because if that child was was going to go to heaven before the foundation of the earth, it's going to happen anyway. If that child uh, was going to be condemned before the foundation of the earth, it's going to happen anyway. And so what we need to understand here is that God institutes these means 
through which the Holy Spirit works to give the gift of faith. And what does faith do? Faith receives the promise. So in baptism, you have that promise, and God gives it to you that you understand that you are one upon whom the Jesus hung on the cross for. And that's going to be a big difference with us in Calvinism too, and it's all related to this, because in Calvinism, they understand the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is only for the elect. It's that understanding of limited atonement. But we as Lutherans in the historic church, the apostolic faith, say that Christ died on the cross for the sins of all humanity, everyone everybody, everybody before us, everybody after us, that he died for all people. And so you have that general statement that Christ was crucified for us, taking upon our sin and wickedness, and then he was raised again for our righteousness. And then what baptism does is it assures the individual that this Jesus who died for the sins of the world died for you. And in this baptism, you are assured that you're united into that death and you are united in the resurrection. Same thing with the Lord's Supper individually. This is the body of Jesus that was given for you. This is the blood of Christ that was poured for you, that was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins that you can individually know for sure. So, I mean, that's going to be the fundamental difference between Calvinism and Lutheranism is also going to be related to an understanding of who did Jesus die for? We say he died for all. And then in baptism, we assure the individuals that, yes, that is you, because the issue in this life is a conscience is always going to be troubled. Did he die for me? Am I one of the elect? And baptism says yes. Maybe two more quick things just to add to that. Joshua in the question is asking about the Lutheran baptism versus the Calvinist baptism. We know that there's two different doctrines of baptism, but there is only one baptism. So it's true that the Calvinist and the evangelical and even the Baptist in a way teach baptism in such a way that they make it law, they make it a work. That doesn't mean that the baptisms that are occurring in those churches are law but rather they are true baptisms if they're done in the confession of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We say that's a valid baptism. And in that baptism, imagine this, someone goes to the revivalistic church or the Calvinistic church. In that baptism, the Lord does adopt them as his own. He puts his name on them. He forgives their sins. He gives them the new birth, even though they don't know it and the church doesn't confess it. It's still a true baptism if it's done in the Lord's name, in the confession of the Holy Trinity. So while the Calvinists teach baptism as a work, they practice it as gospel, even though they don't know it. The other thing is, maybe to end on this, is I think the most helpful verse is Ephesians 5, 24, 25, where Paul's talking about Christ and the church and husband and wife. And he says, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might cleanse her, wash her with the washing of the water and the word. And we just need to look at that verse and, and say to our friends, who is doing the washing? And it's not us doing the washing. It's not the pastor doing the washing. It's Jesus doing the washing. He is the one at work in baptism. He's the one at work in the water and the, and the word to, to give us a good, clean conscience, to, to wash away our sins by the, by the strength of the blood that he shed on the cross. And that's the real gift that Jesus gives in baptism. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, are answering your unanswered Bible questions. Jeff has a question on the other side about Calvinist teaching of double predestination. Casting Christ's Net on the Internet. You're listening to Issues Etc.
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest, author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther, along with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of His American Christianity Failed. We're answering your unanswered Bible questions. Thanks to Jerome in Utah, Donald in Texas, and Tyler in Minnesota for recently ordering recordings of the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. For a contribution of $300 by Labor Day, we'll send you a link, username, and password to video and audio recordings of this year's conference, including all of the presentations, Q&As, worship services, and the hymn sing. You can order at issuesetc.org or give us a call, 618-223-8385. Pastor Wolf Miller, this question comes from Jeff. He says, I'm not sure if this is an unanswered question or an unanswerable one. We Lutherans believe that saving faith is from God through the work of the Holy Spirit. Since that is true and not everyone is saved, how can Calvin's understanding of predestination or even double predestination be wrong? Are all people given the gift of faith and only the people are damned who reject that gift? And how could it be if they had not heard the word? The asker, Joe, is right that this is not just an unanswered question, but an unanswerable question. The reason why the Calvinists are wrong is because they deny that God desires for all people to be saved. They deny universal grace. But there's three truths that the Bible puts before us, and they cannot fit into our minds at the same time. Our reason cannot comprehend them. The three truths are this, universal grace, that God desires for all people to be saved, that Christ died for all people, that the Holy Spirit is working salvation in the in the lives of all people. Secondly is grace alone, that God saves us by his grace alone, apart from any act or decision on our, on our behalf. That I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or come to him. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. The mind of the flesh cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor does it. So that's also taught in the scriptures and the reality of condemnation, that there are some who will be judged and condemned. So those three truths, universal grace, grace alone, and hell, uh, do not make sense to us. And the only way to make sense of it is to get rid of one of them. So the Calvinist gets rid of it by denying universal grace. The free will theologians, American evangelicals and Catholics and all those who would assert free will, get rid of it by denying grace alone and putting human work or effort or decision in there. The universalists get rid of it by getting rid of hell and every other doctrine at the same time, really. But the problem is the Bible teaches all three of those. And so we come to the point where Paul does in Romans 9 and other places where he says, oh, who can fathom these things? How can the potter say to the clay, why did you make me this way? And we have to stop because this mystery, it's not like running into a wall. It's like running over a cliff. So we get to this point, the question, why some, not others? What Francis Pieper called the crux theologorum, the cross of the theologian. We get to this point and we have to stop and kneel down and worship the Lord who knows better than we do. And that's the only way to stay orthodox is to simply confess that not only are we ignorant because we haven't figured it out, we're ignorant because the Lord is holding that wisdom for himself. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Joe asks this question, why do angels battle and resist each other if angels are immortal, are they restrained? Do they battle to restrain? Does God allow them to battle for purposes unknown? Does God limit the power of angels requiring backup? Why doesn't he just speak them into restraint? I am referring mainly to the book of Daniel. What's he talking about there? 
Yeah, this is uh, the whole question that Joe has here about angels and angelic beings. When we look at the scripture, this is the revealed knowledge of salvation that God gives to us. And God does not give us everything. He does not give us the hidden knowledge of all the things that are going on in the uh, invisible realm. But you, you get a picture of this in, in the book of Daniel, that you have the, the angels who are, are battling, that you have this understanding that here on earth, there is a war of words. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, we understand that the kingdoms of this earth are in league with the devil. They're trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming. And so you'll see this, of course, in Egypt, where Pharaoh is the tyrant and the devil is a tyrant of tyrants, trying to prevent the hearing of God's word. You see this with the Babylonians. And so here with Daniel, you have this whole issue. You know, this, this is what's going on here, that all these things are happening in the kingdoms of the earth, trying to prevent people from hearing the word of God. And I think that that's really the realm of the spiritual battle that we see here on earth, is that the angels continue to battle this out where we have the angels of the Lord, the good angels, the ones who are bringing a message, because that's what an angel is, is a messenger. And so a holy angel brings the holy message, just like at the birth of Jesus, the angels, they proclaim that there's peace now on earth because Christ the child is born, the one who's the baby of Bethlehem. And that's the message of the good angels. But you also have the fallen angels who are giving a false message, a fallen message. And that's why we are warned about doctrines of demons. So whenever you look in the Old Testament and you have paganism that's run rampant, that's worship without God's word. That's because they've been duped by these evil angels, these unclean spirits who have brought them alive because the devil is the father of lies. God, of course, is the God of truth. And God's the one who sends out his messengers throughout the Old Testament to assure and to encourage the people of God, to minister to the people of God, that they would continue in that word of truth. So that's why we, we have that understanding, even in the Lutheran faith, of a guardian angel, that when Luther would teach us to pray in the morning or at the evening, that we would commend ourselves to the Lord, that his holy angel would guard and keep us and protect us, that the angels are there battling this out against those who are the evil angels who are trying to convince us to not listen to God's word. Remember, again, this is what uh, Satan is. Satan is the accuser, and he's trying to accuse us. He's trying to blind us. He's trying to keep us from hearing God's word, and he's trying to tempt us into looking to a different word. So I think that's really what we want to see here in the book of Daniel, that this reality is taking place in the world. And you have this cosmic shift in the New Testament when the apostles are sent out to the ends of the earth, that they're sent out to these Gentile kingdoms that these kings of the Gentiles would be converted to the faith of the Messiah. And in the Old Testament, whenever you see these kings coming to faith, this always shows forth the work of Jesus, the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And it always teaches us clearly the doctrine of justification through faith alone. Because here's a, a Gentile that did not do anything that was good, that would deem or merit God's favor, because it's impossible to please God without faith. But then the Gentiles come to faith. So that, that's really the, the realm we want to look at is messengers. I mean, that's what an angel is. So this battle is a battle over the souls. It's a battle over humanity. And that's why when you also see, even in our own age, when different rulers rise to power, even in these days, you can see that they're persuaded to take the populace in a different way. Luther was fond of explaining that you kind of get the ruler that you deserve. You know, you don't want to listen to God's word. You get a ruler who is going to push you away from God's word. And we see this over and over again in the Luther 
lands over in Germany, up in the Scandinavian nations, some of the most godforsaken places in the world right now, because they had the message, the angelic message, as Luther proclaimed it, and the messengers from heaven, the angels were out there helping this message to be carried to the ends of the earth. But now you see these leaders of the world trying to prevent the hearing of God's word. Heidi in Switzerland asked Pastor Wolf Miller, how does the Bible describe the work that we will do in heaven? It appears to be somewhat silent on our future in heaven and our future work, but perhaps I've missed some key text to answer this question. So good to remember that when we normally talk about heaven, we're talking about that intermediate state when the soul and body are separated by death and the soul is resting in the Lord's care, rejoicing in his presence, waiting for the resurrection. The Bible talks about the last day, the day when the Lord returns as the day of the resurrection and judgment, when body and soul are put back together and we're the Christian is raised to newness of life and the new heaven and the new earth, and that will be the eternal state. And in the intermediate state, we have very little information. It's described as a rest, as a time of worship and prayer, as a time of being present with the Lord, as Paul says, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord in a desirable state, so a state of bliss. But even the angels, sorry, the, the souls of the martyrs who are under the altar in heaven are crying out in that intermediate state, how long, O oh Lord, waiting for the resurrection and also waiting for vengeance on those who beheaded them in life. So that's the intermediate state. The Bible does tell us a little bit more about the new heaven and the new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven. It's described as a garden city. And there's a river that runs through it. And the tree is there, the tree of life, which the Lord forbade and made provisions that Adam and Eve couldn't eat from after the fall. Now they're back. And all those descended from Adam and Eve who trusted in Christ are back in this garden city eating from the fruit and the leaves are even healing. So there's a a restoration that goes on. The life in the new heaven and new earth centers on worship, rejoicing in God who is there with his people dwelling with us. It's described in negative ways. So tears are wiped away. There's no more crying, no more sin, no more death. So all of the things that mark the fall are taken away. And so there's this abundance of life. But beyond that, we're only given hints at that life. And I don't know that we can speak from the scriptures about the work that we'll do. It might be just enough to note that The work that the Lord gave to Adam and Eve to have dominion over all of creation and to work the garden, that that was given before the fall. So it seems like there'll be a restoration of this work of bringing about beauty in the Lord's creation. But I think if we say too much more, then we go beyond the bounds of Scripture. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Kevin says, Hi, pastors. In Numbers 15, what does cut off mean? Does it mean killed, as in put to death, or does it mean separated, as in removed from the congregation? Yeah, so I think that when we want to look at cut off, we definitely want to understand this idea of being separated, to cut, to cut things in two. So in the Old Testament, when you talk about making a covenant, you talk about cutting a covenant. And what do you do when you cut a covenant is you cut the animal in two. You know, you're cutting it apart, you're separating it, which of course is going to show forth death. You cut the animal open, the blood drains out, and you no longer have life. I mean, this is the whole understanding of cut, to put to death, to kill. And and I think that what you want to see in particular here, when you look at Numbers chapter 15, is you want to read it in the context. Let's look at the context. If you drop down to about verse 30, uh, the person 
person who does anything with a high hand, okay, so first of all, what's a high hand? That's a hand that's lifted up. This is somebody who's doing something prideful, arrogantly, intentionally, that he knows what he's doing is wrong, but he's going to lift his hand up and kind of take control of things, rise up and say, I'm going to do it. So if a person does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, if he's part of the land or just passing through, he reviles Yahweh. So he's going to revile Yahweh. That person shall be cut off from among his people. And so again, separated. I mean, when you're talking that image of being cut off, cut in two. The animal, if you cut a covenant, that animal is cut in two. The blood drains, you have death. But to be cut off. And so when you're cut off from the people of God, that's the place where you can have the promise of God's presence. And to be cut off from the land of the living is imagery that's used in the Old Testament, that you are no longer part of the living on top of the land. Instead, your body is now under ground. Uh, so to be cut off from the land is to die, but then you don't have the resources of the earth to feed the body. So same thing when you're cut off from the people of God, where you have the promises that you hear the word of the Messiah that's going to come and he is going to restore things, that he is going to be the one who will give us a new testament in his blood. When you're cut off from that word of God's promised presence, of the assurance of the forgiveness of sins, of the assurance of God's holiness given as a gift, you don't have that. You no longer are able to hear the word. You no longer are able to have the Holy Spirit working in you through the word to give you faith. In a certain way, kind of look at it in the same way as excommunication. I mean, when you're partaking of the Lord's Supper and you are taking the very body and blood of Jesus, this is to assure you of the forgiveness of sins. But when you are in a state of unrepentance and you are told that you have been excommunicated, you can no longer communicate. You've been separated from that table to partake that this body has been given for you and this blood has been shed for you because with a high hand, in a way, you're lifted up, you're arrogant, and you say, I am not a sinner. I don't need the body of Jesus. I don't need the blood of Jesus. So you are separated and you are cut off from that participation in the liturgical life of the church. And so even in the context itself, the very next verse goes on and gives you the rationale. Because why? Because he has despised the word of Yahweh and he has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So he's despising the word of God. He's rejecting the promises given in God's word. He's resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. He's broken the commandment and the wages of sin is death. And so that person is going to be cut off. And notice that the iniquity, his own guilt will remain on him, separated from the life of the people of God, where you can be assured of the forgiveness of sins and life and salvation in the promised presence of God at the altar itself. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller as well. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Drew in Michigan has a question about depression after the break. Lutheran Talk. The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. 
Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. How do the global flood, circumcision, and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness foreshadow the baptismal flood in Christ? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. This new Bible study is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or find out more about The Baptismal River at issuesetc.org. The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Concordia University Chicago invites all high school students to attend the annual Careers for Christ weekend in person on our beautiful campus in River Forest. Careers for Christ is November 3rd through the 5th. You'll have the opportunity to learn about professional church vocations while having fun with CUC staff, faculty, and students. For more information, visit cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four, C. That is cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four, C. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're answering your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer are our guests. Pastor Wolfmiller, Drew in Michigan, says this. As someone who has dealt with struggles of diagnosed depression, melancholy for much of my life, I have found that the devil tries to use these struggles within the human condition to see doubt in the secure promises of Christ into our hearts and minds of believers. In my experience, it always relates back to the fact that my feelings or emotional response do not match those of true faith. I have found much comfort in Luther's writings on these matters and know that faith is not something felt, but that it is given extra nose in the Word and Sacraments. Can you provide some further biblical truths for combating the lies of the deceiver? It's a great question because it puts us in the right direction, that we're looking not to ourselves, but to the Scriptures and to the Lord's Word for this comfort. That word extra nose. Uh, it means outside of us, and it grows out of the Lutheran teaching that the Word of God is, well, it's the externum verbum. It's the external Word. We're not looking to ourselves, to our feelings, to our experiences, to our understanding, even to our faith for comfort, but we're looking to the Lord for comfort. And so we're always turning our eyes outside of ourselves, especially, and I appreciate that Drew uses the language of, of melancholy because I don't know, depression is so sterile and clinical, but melancholy, it's more kind of a term of art and it just sounds better. I'm, how much better is it to be afflicted with melancholy than it is to be diagnosed with depression? When we're afflicted with this melancholy, we recognize that we're in this great cloud of witnesses who also were afflicted with melancholy. I mean, we read through Hebrews 11 and we see that those great fathers of the faith were mistreated and were abused and were often sad and afflicted in every way inside and out. We consider the Psalms and we see how David and all the psalmists were praying against their own sadness. Why so downcast my soul? 
we see these beautiful prayers and and this directs our whole life, not only our external life, but also our internal life towards the Lord's word to be oriented and informed by that. I think, Drew, my favorite Bible passage in this particular context with this particular struggle is 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 and following. And that's where, where John is going to talk about how we assure our hearts before him. It's a beautiful promise. And I lean on this all the time. I point people to it all the time as well. It says, by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And then he changes it and says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So if our heart does not condemn us, if our heart feels what it's supposed to feel and confesses what it's supposed to confess after hearing the gospel, then God be praised. But if our heart does not feel what it's supposed to feel, if our heart does not reassure us before him, if we hear the preaching of the forgiveness of sins and we hear the absolution and we hear the words of baptism and we receive the Lord's Supper, this is my body, this is my blood given for you, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins, and we hear those and our heart does not reassure us, then we have one greater than our heart. And the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, rebukes our heart for not echoing the truth of the gospel. So just because you don't feel it doesn't mean it's not true. In fact, we know it's true because God says it. And we can even repent of not feeling in our own hearts what the Lord says is true. And he forgives that as well. So we walk by faith and not by sight. And that includes our feelings. We walk by faith, not by feelings, trusting in his word. If I could add to that, Todd, just a, a Thanksgiving sandwich in Psalm 118. These Psalms themselves, they teach us how to confess the faith in the midst of a world that's falling apart before us. And so experience tells us that it's, it's as if, experience says, God doesn't care. But it's God's word, that outside of us word that comes to us to assure us that God does. So you have a Psalm like 118, a Thanksgiving sandwich, where it begins by saying, oh, give thanks to Yahweh because he is good, because his steadfast love endures forever. And it ends on that same note, give thanks to Yahweh. See, by nature, we don't want to give thanks. I mean, by nature, we are enemies of God, but yet we are being instructed to give thanks, to be thankful for the gifts that God gives us in this life. And, and that's looking at God as the creator, looking at God as the redeemer. And this is a confession of faith that we know he is good, not because the day is good, not because life seems to be good, it seems to be bad, but because the scripture tells us so. We know that God is good. And it's in that Psalm where you have this camaraderie of the saints saying, let us say this together, that his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say this. And so in that context where you look around at the saints who've gone on before and the saints who are with us now that are suffering the same kind of tribulations and trials that we have in our own lives, then this is where you say, out of my distress, I called upon Yahweh and Yahweh answered me and he set me free. Or as the passage keeps going on, it goes on to explain the fact that Yahweh is the one who is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And this is where you can confess and say, this is is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So your focus is there, knowing that this is the day that God has made. Every day that he gives is a gift, learning to be thankful, looking to God as the one who is living, the one who is actively involved in your life, even though it doesn't 
appear that way with experience, but then also knowing this is the psalm about Jesus. He is the stone that the builders rejected. He's the one that we cry out to and say, Hosanna, save us now, O Lord. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Chastity asks, does Jesus being given the title Prince of Peace relate back to his being the heir of Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem, Melchi being king, Zedek being righteousness, Salem being peace, Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, am I seeing a link that isn't there? Well, okay, we're meditating upon how do we find Christ in the Old Testament, and we're looking at these passages, yes, Christ is there, and sometimes we we do draw links that aren't necessarily there because we're almost trying too hard. Now, we know that he's there some way, in some form, and we're trying to make these connections throughout, but I, I think that it would be better to kind of look in a different direction here, because really, in Isaiah chapter 9, we're, we're not talking specifically about a priest in that passage. We're talking about a king in particular. So so we're, we're looking at someone who is a king. Now, I know that Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. Yes, that's true. So we want to focus more on the king part. And that's why this language is a prince, a sar. Uh, a sar is also translated in the Old Testament as a commander. And so that's really what you want to see here is one who is a prince, one who's a commander. I mean, we're talking more in a military uh, language. We're talking more in a, a kingdom type language. We're not talking an ecclesiastical language of a priest per se. And so, yes, he's going to bring peace. He is the prince of peace. In fact, it's in that very same chapter nine where we say of the increase of peace, there will be no end. So he's going to bring this peace which surpasses all human understanding. And that's why in Colossians, we can say that it's in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it's through him that we are reconciled, that he has reconciled all things to himself, whether on earth and heaven, and he's making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, see, you have that peace, the connection of the blood of the cross there in Colossians, which kind of tends to lean towards the priestly understanding, a sacrificial system that Jesus, of course, is the high priest, the mediator that goes before God in the heavenly places. But I really think that what we want to look at in this passage is more of the one who is going to fight for us, not the one who dies for us. I mean, they're both true, so they're not mutually exclusive. But I, I think that we want to let the scripture kind of in the context, teach us about Jesus in these very unique ways. And so this is the the one who is going to defeat in a military way, a military might, one who's a king who's going to go out to war and he's going to defeat the enemy for us. And I think that's where you want to look more at that word sar, because that's not the same word that's used for king or for priest or for what we have with the righteousness, Zedek, uh, back with Melchizedek. But you, you want to look at more like Joshua chapter 5, where you have the commander of the army of Yahweh. That word commander, that's the Tsar. Okay, that's the Tsar. He's the commander. He's the Tsar. He's the prince of the heavenly host. And who is this, of course, that Joshua sees? Well, this is a theophany. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity. So just like Moses saw the second person of the Holy Trinity in the burning bush, and Yahweh, who speaks from the bush, who is the Son, the Eternal One, says to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Take off your sandals, your shoes, because you're standing on holy ground. Well, Joshua is one who succeeds Moses is having the same kind of theophany here where the commander of the, the armies of Yahweh, 
The second person of the Holy Trinity is there and saying to him, take off your sandals for your feet are on holy ground because where he is holy, he alone is holy, he makes holy. So I think that the better connection here would actually be to the commander of the army of Yahweh in Joshua chapter 5. I'm Todd Wilkin, your link to Issues Etc. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of Reading Isaiah with Luther, and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of His American Christianity Failed. Both of these books are published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or look for Reading Isaiah with Luther and His American Christianity Failed on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. On the other side, Eric in Tennessee has a question about the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. This fall in creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ to altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org slash disaster. That's lcms.org slash disaster. Faith Lutheran Church and School in Plano, Texas preaches Christ crucified. Join us each Lord's Day to hear law and gospel preaching and to receive the Lord's Supper. Our classical preschool through grade 12 Lutheran school is second to none. The school serves home educators, too, with online classes in the high school. We are located at 1701 East Park Boulevard in Plano, Texas. Reach us by phone at 972-423-7448 or on the web at www.flsplano.org. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Common and experienced firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors. Coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day, to hear the Word of God and to lift our voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to, to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one's study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of, A, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess, 
then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller are our guests. Eric in Clinton, Tennessee, Pastor Wolfmiller, can Matthew count the beginning genealogy of Jesus and Matthew and several generations of 14, before we get to Jesus, seems to have some question to the numbering. Please explain. I do not know how to explain that, but we see two genealogies for Jesus, one in Matthew, the other in Luke, and they're tracking Jesus, his earthly family, and we have them both listed. There's been a lot of people trying to sort out the answers, and every time I read someone, they say, here's the answer, here's someone else. Pastor Ketcher might, might have it pinned down, but but um, but Matthew is giving us these three sets of 14, so we have generations from Adam to Abraham, Abraham to David, David to, to Joseph. And he's showing the the orderly progression that here we have Jesus, who is of the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the fulfillment of this promise. And that's the main thing when we're tracking down the line of Jesus, that he is, according to both mother and father, he is the descendant of, of Adam, of Noah, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and King David. So those are the people that the Lord gave the promise. Your seed will be the blessing of the nations. And so it tracks that promise through the Old Testament to get us to Jesus. I think it might be. I, I mean, Eric would know because he's the one who's trying to, to tally up the numbers here. But what I think it might be is just the way that he's counting. I mean, because the, the question is about the counting. Is the, the number off? Is Matthew wrong in his counting? And, and I, I think that you want to look at that text again, and you want to count from Abraham to David. That's 14. And then the text starts again by noting David, but it's after David, then you count again at another 14. So that's that 14 generations up to David. So Abraham to David, and then after David is 14 generations. So I, I think maybe look at the counting again that way, that up to David is 14, and then you don't count again with David, you count after David another 14. So here is a question from Jerry in Centennial, Colorado. I was reading through the book of Hebrews recently, and the verses of chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that say to leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, struck me as support for the evangelical doctrine where the gospel is assumed and one's focus should be on good works. These verses seemed to contradict St. Paul in Corinthians, where he focuses on nothing but Christ and him crucified. The subsequent chapters of Hebrews go on to focus on deeper issues such as Christ's priesthood and Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, which seems to contradict verses 6, verses 1 through 2. I'm not sure how to interpret that. It would be grateful for any guidance you could provide, Pastor Wolfmiller. So the text reads, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment, and this will do if God permits. 
And then it goes on to talk about any number of things. In fact, the book of Hebrews is going to list a number of doctrines that we don't have time to discuss. It does that a few different times, an indication that Hebrews is a sermon that was uh, written down for us. It's really quite beautiful text. Uh, it is important for us to notice that here we do have a foundation laid. Paul talks about this distinction between the elementary doctrines and the advanced doctrines. He talks about it in in language of food, milk versus meat. And he says, I wish you were more mature. I wish it's time to eat meat, but I still have to give you milk. And I think that Jerry picked this up even in the question already, that to move on past the basics is not to move on past Jesus. Mm. It's not like we start with Jesus and then we get really advanced and now it's time to talk about Moses. No, you start with Jesus and you you are delving deeper into the mystery of Jesus, who he is, how he is not only the one who's greater than the angels and greater than Moses, but he's also greater than the tabernacle and greater than Melchizedek, the greatest of all high priests. We're never leaving behind the gospel. We're never leaving behind the person and the work of Christ. The, in fact, the more we grow in our theology, the more we can say, I know no God but the man Christ Jesus. We preach Christ and him crucified. So we can never stop learning what the Lord stops teaching. So it is true that there's the basics that we teach the children. And then as we mature in Christ, we learn more and more. But but it's never like we change the subject from, from our Lord Jesus and move past him. That would be a misreading of this text. Pastor Ketchmeyer, Kathy says, I'm confused about the part in the Apostles' Creed that says Jesus descended into hell. What does it mean? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's great. The, the, the Jesus descended to hell. Now, the in the Book of Concord, okay, so in, in the Book of Concord itself, this becomes an issue. Of what does it mean? There's a confusion among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession. What does this mean that Jesus descended in hell? And then it, it points us, of course, to uh, Luther's uh, whole sermon on this, about this issue itself. And, and when we, we look at descending in hell, we don't want to get confused. You, you get to sometimes in American evangelicalism that uh, Jesus ascended into hell so that he could suffer there some more or something to that effect. But really what we want to look at is that we want to understand that Jesus has done everything necessary on the cross. And so that descent into hell, of course, is a proclamation of victory. And so that's the idea that what you have in the, the formula of Concord is the point is this, he has destroyed hell for all believers. Okay, so that's the idea. He goes into hell, proclaims victory, and says, this place is done. You know, it's like, put a closed sign on it. This is out of business for the believer. That's the key, that he's redeemed them from the power of death, from the power of the devil, from eternal damnation, and these, these hellish jaws, hell itself, the place of the dead. So view it that way, that it's Jesus who comes there kind of to put a sign and say, this place no longer is in business, <laughs> that Jesus has destroyed hell for all believers. And that's the key that we want to look at here. We don't want to go into any speculations that outside the scripture, what exactly took place, what was the chain of events when he got there, but just understand what Jesus did, that because of his death and resurrection, we need not fear death because we know that death is a defeated foe, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church and that confession that Jesus is Christ, the son of the living God. He was crucified for us and he, now he lives and he forgives us. Scott says, 
Did Christ perform miracles, cast out demons, and teach and prophesy by his divine power or by the Holy Spirit's power? I recently heard a non-Lutheran Bible teacher say that Christ did these things by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by his divinity since he veiled his divinity. And the Bible says he did it through the Spirit. Do we Lutherans have an opinion on this? Does it matter? Pastor Wolf Miller. It's a great question because it's careful Bible reading. The Lord Jesus himself will say, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. So Jesus himself will sometimes attribute his own miracles to the Holy Spirit and then sometimes to his own power. For example, when he turns water into wine, he manifested his glory in that case. So sometimes the miracles are attributed to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the miracles are attributed to the Lord's divine nature. Sometimes no attribution is made. So I do not think we want to set them against one another, but we confess that, in fact, it's it's part of who Jesus is, that he is the one who possesses the oil of gladness above all his fellows. That's that beautiful Psalm 45, where Jesus has the fullness of the Spirit, the, the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit. That's what it means to be the Christ, the anointed one. So he bears the Spirit without measure. And so sometimes the miracles are attributed to the divine nature of Christ, sometimes to the Holy Spirit, sometimes unattributed. And we wouldn't want to make a distinction there, but we see the, the Spirit and the Son and the Father all working together in the ministry of Jesus, all the works of God to the outsider, undividable. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together to accomplish all these things for us and for our salvation. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. They are answering your unanswered Bible questions. There's a tweet from Craig about meat sacrificed to idols, meat with blood, and sexual sins in Acts 15 next. Remember, our Lord promised us this. He promised us that the world would hate us if we were true to him. San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelion, speaking at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. He gave us the last beatitude, both in Matthew's version and Luke's version, that we're to rejoice when they ridicule us and utter evil against us unjustly. We're to rejoice. The apostles in the Acts, they rejoiced that they were able to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. So it's up to us to keep the flame of faith and true alive in the darkness. The truth cannot be suppressed. Let us be witnesses of that. You can watch and listen to Archbishop Cordelione's presentation, Making the Case for Speaking the Truth to Power, and all of the teachings from this year's conference for a donation of $300 by Labor Day. It's available via on-demand video streaming or podcast. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. St. Peter encourages us always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is where we get the Greek word for apologetics, that is to defend the Christian faith. The September issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the topics of apologetics and archaeology and discusses both of them in detail with articles from Paul Meyer, Sarah Rinsel, Mark Meal, and David Adams. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. 
Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Thursday, August the 31st, we're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller are our guests. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Craig has tweeted a question. Acts 15, 29. Meat sacrificed to idols, meat with blood, and sexual sins. Why are these the ones listed instead of any other sins? Thank you. And he's referring there, of course, to the Apostolic Council in Acts 15. Oh, no, th- this is uh, good for us to look at the text itself. It's always in the context. So we want to understand that what's the issue in Acts chapter 15? The issue is the conversion of the Gentiles. And again, when you have the conversion of the Gentiles, this is where we are clearly teaching the doctrine of justification through faith alone. So these Gentiles have come to faith, not by their own effort, not by their own decision, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's going to be the issue here. What do you do with these Gentiles who before were not part of the ceremonial laws of the Mosaic law, and they were doing their own thing. So what do we do with the Gentiles who are now participating with us in this liturgical life where we receive the word and the sacrament? And, and that's going to be the question here that's, it's, uh, that's for debate kind of at this council. And you have Peter saying that, hey, that God made no distinction between us and them, you know, Jews and Gentiles in Christ, no distinction because he's cleansed their hearts by faith. So right away, Peter gets to the whole jugular here, the whole issue at stake. It is the doctrine of justification upon which the church stands or falls. And so the issue is they've been cleansed by faith. And therefore, why are you trying to put God to the test by placing a yoke upon their necks, the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You know, so now you're converted to the faith in Jesus, that Jesus has made satisfaction for all sins, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. There's no longer the civil law. It's been fulfilled in Christ. Even the moral law, everything has been fulfilled in Christ. But that ceremonial law was all for a certain time period until the one who is the all availing sacrifice comes. You no longer need the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why go back that direction? Why go back to kosher laws? Why go back to these ritual laws? You know, the Gentiles themselves had ritual laws, okay? But they were worshiping without God's word. And so Peter goes on and he confesses, we believe that we will be saved through grace by the Lord Jesus just as they are. There's no distinction here. So the issue is not about what do we need to do to make these Jewish participants under the ceremonial law. So that's the area that we're talking. The whole focus is a ceremonial ritual law. They had different rituals as Gentiles. And that's what in the Old Testament makes this separation or this distinction between the Jews who are waiting for the Messiah and the Gentiles who don't have that promise. So when you look at these issues in particular, you see immediately the meat sacrificed idols. So that means that you are now a participant at the table of the Lord. You're brought into the household of God to come to the altar to receive the very body and blood of Jesus. You no longer need to go back to your old temple 
back to the Gentile temple where there is sacrifices. That's done. So don't go to meat sacrifice to idols. Again, idolatry being worship without God's word. That's what you used to do because you didn't know any better. You were part of this, this old world that's falling apart. But now you're a new creation. There's no condemnation. So don't go back to sacrificing idols. Don't go back to the meat with the blood going back to the temple. Because understand in that context, historically, there wasn't a butcher shop that was set up. There wasn't a grocery store where you go get meat. The idea is the meat is at the temple because you're eating the meat that's being used in the temple life of the Gentiles. So don't go back and participate with the meat there with them either, okay? Because it's going to be a stumbling block to the Jews because the Jews who've been practicing the ceremonial law up to the time of Christ, and they always had a distinction that the Jews and the Gentiles were different based upon these these rituals. Now, you don't want to put a stumbling block before the Jews themselves, but you don't want to lay on further burdens upon them. And so sexual sins in particular, understand that those temples of the Gentiles were fertility cults. And so you would have temple prostitutes at those temples. That was part of the worship there. So really what you're doing is you're making it clear that these Gentiles are full-fledged believers in Jesus, part of the church, but they don't need to become Jewish in their ceremonial ritual practice, but they definitely need to cease from their former pagan ritual and ceremonial practices. So I think that's what you really want to see here is how do you engage in the issue of these new believers who are Gentiles coming to the faith and the church expanding and growing as the word of Jesus goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jeff in Michigan, Pastor Wolf Miller, my question is about Acts 2, verses 37 through 39, and specifically St. Peter's apostolic instruction to the Jews to repent. In the Babylonian captivity of American evangelicalism, I was taught that repent meant to turn around, stop sinning, and accept Jesus Christ. As a confessional Lutheran, I now understand St. Peter's command, repent, means to confess your sin and ask for mercy, as our Lord taught in Luke 18. Is this the correct way to understand repent in the context of St. Peter's Pentecost Day sermon? There's two parts to repentance. The first is contrition, and that's what the Holy Spirit works through the law when he shows us our own sin. So repentance is to first know that we are sinners, and that's hard for us to know and to believe it. It has to be worked by the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin. The second part of repentance is faith trust in Christ, the Savior of sinners, that he is the forgiver of all sins, including mine. And those two parts, contrition and faith, is what makes up repentance. And then there's a third part that grows out of repentance. Sometimes we call it the fruit of repentance, and that is the amendment of life, a life of quiet suffering and love to the neighbor that the Holy Spirit begins to work in us while we wait for the redemption of our bodies. So these three parts of repentance are generally what is included, the first two and then the third that follows. Sometimes the Bible will use repent in referring to that first part, contrition. So you'll hear repent and believe. And so that in that case, that repentance is really the first part of contrition, to be sorry for our sin. And then the, and then faith is listed there as believe, the, the second part. The problem with evangelicalism is it mistakes the fruit of repentance for repentance itself. And it says that repentance is that turning away from sin and turning to the new life, which is in Christ. That repentance is a matter of works. Repentance is a matter of doing. But that's what the Bible calls the fruit of repentance. John the Baptist says, who trained you to do these things? Bear the fruit of repentance. And he goes to list it out. So evangelicalism confuses repentance and the fruit of repentance. And if we can clean that up, it makes things a lot cleaner, 
a lot better when reading the Bible. And I think in that way, that's exactly what Peter means in his Pentecost sermon, repent. It means you must know from the word of God, the two most difficult and most important things to know. That is that you are a sinner who is forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering and death. And so repentance is those two things, almost always, and especially here. So repent and be baptized. That's what Paul wants them to do, to forsake their own clinging to their own pride, to recognize their sin, and then to lay aside the idea that they can save themselves and trust in Christ, the Savior. A final question for both of you, Pastor Ketchelmeyer first, with about a minute or so apiece. Debbie says, is suffering for Christ only an outward thing, like a missionary getting put into prison or preacher being mocked? I've had chronic condition for the last 20 years. I'm a Christian and a confessional Lutheran since February 2023. Am I suffering for Christ because of my illness? It would make it easier to deal with, but I don't want to be presumptuous. Thank you, pastors and issues, etc. Best thing on the web. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, you first with about a minute. Well, first of all, Debbie, maybe what we want to say here is just be clear that it's not necessarily that you're suffering for Christ, you're suffering in Christ, so that in this life, the world is falling apart and there is suffering. And so as Christians, we've been crucified with Christ and we are learning to rejoice in suffering. Now, we're not rejoicing in suffering because we like suffering in general, physical ailments or the conditions that we have in our own lives, but because we know that God is working together for the good in all things for those who love him. So we rejoice in the suffering, knowing that we are suffering with Christ, and Christ is suffering with us, so we're participating in the life of Christ. Pastor Wolf Miller, how would you respond to Debbie? It's a great point that Christ suffers with us, that we suffer in him, that the worst affliction is not that which happens to the body, but the affliction of the soul and the mind and the heart, and this longing to be with Christ, to know him and to be known by him. This is true suffering. And the Lord knows it. The depth of his suffering is articulated in this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was not the physical affliction of the cross. It wasn't even the shame of the cross, but the spiritual dimensions of feeling God's wrath. And so this is where the deepest suffering occurs. But it's a great comfort to to remember that Christ suffers with us. We suffer with him. And most especially that Christ suffered for us. So that he suffered that deep affliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can know that even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with us. He won't forsake us. And he hasn't forsaken you, Debbie. In fact, in Christ, we can receive our sufferings as gifts from him and indications of his deep and profound love and care and compassion for us. That's a deep spiritual mystery, but it's true. It does not mean that God has forsaken you, but in fact, it is an indication for his children that he's drawn close to us and is drawing us closer to himself. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One, and he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, thanks. Thank you. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor and author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, thanks. Oh, it was my pleasure. Issues Etc. has been brought to you in part today by Lutherans for Life. Check out their free pro-life resources at lutheransforlife.org, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life, Lutherans for Life. Friday on Issues Etc. we'll continue our Kids Have Questions series talking with Pastor Jonathan Connor about relationships, death, and dying. And it's This Week in Pop Christianity with Chris Rosebro. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. 
Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Bahama Mama, Ocean Pacific, Paradise Island. Retreat from the heat with the shaved ice snow cone from Tropical Snow in Caseyville, Illinois. It's right across the street from Collinsville High School. Tropical Snow is open daily from 1 to 9. Premium snow, epic flavors, lots of love. Tropical Snow, across the street from Collinsville High School at 2134 South Morrison Avenue in Caseyville.